All right, we'll open up your Bibles to the book of Acts, and we are with the Apostle Paul again. In this week, we're going to the city of Corinth. The city of Corinth is where we are heading this week. So we're going to Acts chapter 18. We were in Athens for two weeks, and now we're going to spend a week in Corinth, then we'll be on our way to Ephesus, and then he's heading back home to give a praise report for all that God did on the second missionary journey. Now I've got a real treat for you this morning, because sometimes I try and bring the Bible to life for you, so that you know that these were real people in the most civilized, advanced uh, kingdom, empire on earth back then. So what I found was they made like a 3D reconstruction of the city of Corinth that the Apostle Paul was heading into. So we're going to play that video right now while I talk over it. But this is, um, this is a reconstruction of Corinth, which was one of the greatest cities in the Roman Empire. It was the capital of the region, the largest city in Greece. We are talking big city time, right? Paul had been through a lot of small towns. He had been through some bigger cities, but Corinth was a new animal. Uh, this city it, it had great power because it had two ports, and so it was kind of the, the place where the east and the west met when it came to trade. So there was a lot of money flowing through there, a lot of power, a lot of people, people from all over the world. And Corinth would become, along with Ephesus, two of the strategic bases for church planting and for ministry throughout the Roman Empire. Now, what would you feel like if you arrived to this city, having come from Athens, and this is where you're going to start reaching out with the gospel, finding the Christians, planting a church? Can you imagine just feeling overwhelmed, right? And uh, there's hundreds of thousands of people that live in this city. You might say to yourself, well, hey, let's get started. This seems like a wonderful place for a new church to, to launch. Here's the thing. Corinth had a bad reputation as cities go. In fact, the worst. Uh, it was Sin City. Let's just call it the Las Vegas of the Roman Empire. <laughs> what, what happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth. Okay, you know what I'm talking about. They had the temple to Aphrodite, a.k.a. Uh, the goddess of love, right? The goddess of love, Venus, up on this mountain looking over the city. And in the old city, before Rome destroyed it, there would be a thousand prostitutes from this temple who would walk down into the city in the night. So that's the kind of city that Paul just arrived at. It was a very dirty, dark, corrupt, sinful place. And guess what? This is where God chose to put one of the most strategic church planting bases in the first century church. And you might be like, why would God do that? If you've read 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, those were letters written to this church, and Paul had his hands full with these people, right? It was like chaos church uh, back then. In fact, Paul would write in his letters saying, I came to you, to this city, in weakness, with great fear, and trembling, meaning he felt overwhelmed and terrified being in this city because it would likely devour him. You know, he had been chased out of cities already a bunch of times. I think he wanted to be chased out of this one. I think he wanted to get there and have some bad people be like, you need to leave town. He'd be like, all right, I'm out of here, you know, and uh, surprise, surprise, he's going to stay here for a year and a half because God loves surprising us by sparking revival in cities with a bad reputation. Do you know any close by? Let's pray. 
Father, as we arrive in Corinth, we learn about your heart. Jesus, we learn that you are alive and you had plans for Corinth. And you picked this city, wicked, dark, depraved, to put a base of ministry that would reach the entire Roman Empire. Lord, give us hope, give us heart that you could use us in our city. There are people from all over the world in Chicago. And Lord, this is just your kind of place to launch out, to reach people with the love of Christ. So as we watch what happens through the Apostle Paul's bold testimony, show us, O Lord, how you build your kingdom and how we can be a small part of the greatest thing happening on earth and in heaven right now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Acts chapter 18, verse 1 says this. After this, Paul left Athens. Now everybody go like this. <sighs> you ever leave a place you didn't want to leave? Paul was highly educated. Like he went to one of the three biggest university towns in the whole empire, okay? And when he was in Athens, I have a feeling he was like, yes, let me stay here. These people are smart. They, they know literature. I can talk to them. Let's, let's put the base here. Left, and he goes into Corinth. Just, just kind of hold your nose for a second. Just kind of go like this. Okay, okay, this is, this is what Corinth was. It was a stink in the Roman Empire. After this, he left Athens and went to Corinth. He found a Jew named Aquila, native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. These are going to become key. There's a lot of who's who in this passage. These will be key ministry partners who, worship, who uh, minister side by side with Paul for many years now. And so he finds friends very quickly. Because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. Claudius was the emperor. And according to another Roman historian, there was clamoring, bickering, and rioting among the Jews, likely because of Jesus. They were either infighting or they were causing the other Romans to fight. Whatever the case, Claudius was just like, that's it. You all get out of here, okay? So they were expelled from Rome. It gives us evidence that the gospel was already rattling Rome, rattling Rome, and they were just trying not to deal with it. Because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks when Silas and Timothy arrived, his buddies finally show up from Macedonia. Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. When they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. All right, so the passage is broken down into three sections, and the points will follow that. There's a ministry report, there's a vision, and there's a trial. Number one, write this down, Paul preached the gospel in Corinth. Paul preached the gospel in Corinth. Great example of humble sacrifice. The passage reveals that he was willing to be a tent maker. In fact, this has become a phrase now. Well, he was a tent maker. And what that means is Paul was willing to work as a tent maker to make money and then do ministry kind of part-time when he was not making tents along with his friends. Um, across the world, ministers have to be bivocational. They're tent makers. They have to have a job, and then they have to take care of the church and preach the word on their off time because overall, you know, the world is not... 
full of riches, where in every place they can have a church building and a pastor full-time and a staff and everything. So being a tent maker means he was willing to work hard and also carry the burden of leading a church, planting a church at the same time. It says he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So he preached the gospel. He went to the Jews first, as was his way, as was the Lord's way, and then to the Gentiles. And it says when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word. That means that he then was able to give himself full time to the word. Elsewhere in scripture, we find out that his buddies showed up with an offering. And the churches in Macedonia, he said, would support him again and again and again. Uh, this was his way as kind of a missionary. They would fund him so that he no longer had to make tents and he could then go out and full-time minister to the city. And we see because of that, many people got baptized. We learn here a principle of gospel expansion. When God's people who work hard and have a heart for the mission give generously to the work through church, church planters, missionaries, the gospel can have a greater impact because it frees up God's servants to put their, their whole time into reaching out and preaching the gospel. And so we see how those things go together here in a very practical way. We also see how good it is for friends to be around. Paul was all alone in Athens, and now he's got a bunch of buddies around him, which is really great. And so Paul preached the gospel in Corinth. And what did he, what did he preach? Well, it says here in verse 5, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. So write this down. Jesus is the promised Messiah. Jesus is the promised Messiah. The idea of the Christ, sometimes people think Jesus was Jesus' first name and Christ was Jesus' last name, right? But that, that's not what it is. Christ is a title, the anointed one, the Messiah. So, so Paul was showing them Old Testament passages about this king, this ruler who would come, and he would establish a kingdom that would never end. And Paul would show them in the scrolls that the Christ, that they've learned about, the Christ is Jesus. And he would lay Old Testament beside his New Testament understanding of Christ side by side so that they would see he is the Christ. The Christ is him. So Jesus is the promised Messiah. Knowing that for thousands of years the Old Testament predicted the coming of a king, even from the Garden of Eden there was, there was a promise mentioned that the offspring of Eve would ultimately crush the head of Satan. That somehow, through a man, the spiritual forces of darkness would be overtaken. Jesus is that promised Messiah. So God has a plan. His plan is a person. And only through this promised Savior can death be defeated. And can we cross over from darkness into light. So, this is not a new religion. Paul's not showing them a new Ten Commandments, you know, he's telling them about Jesus. And people have said this before, but Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship with a risen Lord who came into the world, lived the perfect life, died on the cross to take away all of our sins, was thrown in a tomb, rose on the third day, was risen to the right hand of God where he now rules heaven and earth. So my question for you is, how do we get to heaven? How do we get to heaven? The most common answer I get when I ask people how you get to heaven is, well, you've got to be a good person. And that sounds nice until you realize that the Bible says there's really no such thing 
as people good enough to earn their way into heaven, because you have to be perfect to get into heaven. Heaven with sin is no longer heaven. So if you have any sin in your life, you'd ruin it. So would I. So how do I get to a place that requires zero sin for eternity? Well, that's impossible with man. Somebody had to come down, cleanse me of all my sins, and actually make it possible for me to be righteous before God. I can't do that. You can't do that. The standard is so high, it's heavenly. Only Jesus can do that. So how do we get to heaven? Well, we have to realize that we need a Messiah. We need a Savior. We need Jesus to reach down into this world, to take our hand, and to pull us up into the kingdom that belongs to him. Have you believed that? Do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? This plan is thousands of years old, and Paul's showing them that the Christ is Jesus. Is that how you're getting to heaven? So he says, tried to persuade them in verse 4. He reasoned with them, tried to persuade them, right, uh, that Jesus is the Christ, according to verse 5. Verse 6, what was the result? When they opposed and reviled him. Uh-oh. They didn't accept it. Now, they were shown the passages. They should have accepted it. There's so many prophecies in the Old Testament about where Jesus was born, how he would minister, what he would do, how he would die, how he would rise. So many prophecies. And they saw it, saw it, saw it, saw it, and said, get out of here. There's a variety of reasons why the Jews rejected the gospel found in Scripture. They include envy. They didn't like that these apostles were getting all the attention. You've got more Facebook friends than we do now. We don't like you. Envy. Big deal sin. There was also fear. Rome's going to come. If there's another king, Rome's going to come and take away our nation. Get out of here. You're going to get us all killed. Fear. Fear. Big reason people don't get saved. Fear. Pride. Pride. Jesus. He didn't part the Red Sea. Moses did that. Jesus is minor league. I follow Moses. Pride. Pride in tradition. And why else are Jews opposing the gospel according to scripture? Well, greed. It paid to be in religion back then, especially if you were in Jerusalem. Remember the temple was also the national bank. All the money flowed through there. So if, uh, Jesus came to town and was now over, over, over everything, that could seriously disrupt their livelihood, especially the bribes and the corruption. You know what I'm talking about? So greed, pride, envy, fear, this is why the Jews opposed the gospel and reviled the apostles. So Jesus is the promised Messiah. Write this down. The message is the word of God. The message is the word of God. So when they rejected it, Paul let them know that they weren't rejecting him, they were rejecting God. It says that he gave himself uh, to the word of God. It said that he gave himself to the word, right, in verse 5, but later in the passage it's called the word of God. And so this is the word of God. It's heaven's message, and Paul writes in his epistles, I didn't, nobody told me this, I heard it straight from heaven when Jesus appeared to me. So this was a heavenly message he was sharing with them. That's why when they opposed and reviled him in verse 6, it says he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. What is that? He takes off his cloak. Right? Like, shake, 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 shake. 
What is this? What is he doing? Well, if you know your Bibles before, in 2 Samuel 1.16, David told the man who killed Saul, the king at the time, your blood is on your own head because you knowingly killed the Lord's anointed. So, so this phrase, your blood be on your own head, is you are self-condemned. They know better because they were shown the scripture and they rejected and refused to believe. And Paul used that biblical phrase, your blood is on your own head. You are self-condemned. You know better. So your blood be on your own head is a phrase that he uses. It's also a way of saying my hands are clean, right? I've, your blood is on your own head. I've cleansed my responsibility of having to show you the truth about Christ. In Nehemiah 5.13, Nehemiah shook out his garments as a protest against these people who were sitting, and he said, may God so do to you. So the blood be on your own heads is you're self-condemned and my hands are clean. The shaking out the garments is this is what God's going to do to you. He's going to shake everything out of you and you're going to be empty and you're going to have nothing. So it's a prophecy of God's judgment that will rightfully fall on someone who knowingly rejects the gospel. So Paul does this and it's a warning to them and everyone in the room. It's a warning. You are defying God. It's a warning. So did you hear that several years ago, hackers got access to every tornado siren in Dallas. There's like 130 tornado sirens in Dallas. Hackers got all of them and turned them all on at the same time for hours. Here's a video of Dallas at that time. People didn't know what to make of it. All of them were going off. 911 received 4,000 phone calls. Is there a tornado coming? Is there an airstrike? Is there a forest fire? What's going on? What's going on? What's going on? Why? Because all the warning sirens went off, right? So they had to keep telling people, everything's fine, everything's fine, everything's fine, everything's fine. Sirens are supposed to warn people. In that instance, it was a false alarm. But we know what it means when there's a warning. And I want you to know that in this passage for the original audience and for anyone in this room who has been raised to know the truth about Jesus Christ, but you have not yet received him as Savior and Lord, I want you to know right now that all the warning sirens in heaven are going off. Can you hear them? Can you hear them? Warning! Warning! War I don't have a shirt to take off and shake, okay? <laughs> you don't want me to do that. Please hear me. When there is a warning passage in Scripture, I want you to feel the weight of it. And if you are in this group where you know better than to reject the gospel of Jesus Christ and you still aren't there, warning, warning, warning. Your blood is going to be on your own head. That's a strong thing to hear today, and I need you to hear it. Because judgment day is coming, and you're self-condemned. And people have tried to tell you. They've tried to warn you, and you're still not there. And you've got to hear the warning. You've got to hear the warning while you still have time. Jesus is the promised Messiah. The message is the word of God. Write this down. Do you believe or reject the gospel? Do you believe or reject 
the gospel. They opposed and reviled him. He shook out his garments and said, Your blood be on your own head. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. He left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. He got saved. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul believed and were baptized, they had a church. It's, the synagogue was like, get him out of here. And then they looked around, they're like, where's our pastor? Where is Crispus? Did, what? He's over there? Great. Now we got to go find another one. They were not happy about this. But you can clearly see that either they believed and they were saved and baptized, or they didn't believe. Are you in or are you out? There's none of this. There's none of this at the pearly gates. There's none of this. Either you're in or you're out. Baptism is the clearest public way to show that you have become a follower of Jesus Christ. And maybe you missed it a few weeks ago. We baptized a few people. Check it out. Here's their baptisms. People publicly professing their faith in Jesus Christ. No shame, full of joy. And maybe you've never done this. Maybe you've never publicly professed your faith in Jesus Christ and demonstrated to the world that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Hey, I don't know what's stopping you, but I'd love for you to get saved, and I'd love for you to get baptized to show that you are saved. It says here they believed in verse 8, and they were baptized. Maybe it's time for you to decide. Do you know Jesus as Savior and Lord, that he's the promised Messiah and ruler of heaven and earth, the only one who can get you access into the kingdom that will last forever? Have you repented, and are you willing to be baptized? Maybe it's time. Maybe it's time. Number one, Paul preached the gospel in Corinth. Number two, jot this down, Jesus appeared to Paul in a vision. Now we're at the vision. Jesus appeared to Paul in a vision. There's a ministry report, a vision, and then a trial is coming. It says in verse 9, And the Lord, that's Jesus, said to Paul one night in a vision. Now right there, we've got some pretty awesome stuff. The Lord, Jesus, that means he's alive, which is the entire reason Luke wrote this book, said to Paul in a vision, we don't even have that technology yet, do we? Right? Like, there's a lot of ways that I can get my kids to do what I want. I can't appear in a vision to them yet during the night and say, clean your room, right? We don't have anything close to that. This is heaven's technology. In a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word, word of God, among them. Let's read that again. Do not be afraid. Go on speaking and do not be silent. <clears throat> For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed for a year and a half. There are going to be a lot of people getting saved in this big city. So God placed him there and said, you're not leaving. You're going to stay here. Let's unpack this vision. Jesus appears to Paul in a vision. Jot this down. He said, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. He knows Paul's afraid. He knows. He's been beaten. He's almost been killed. He practically was raised to life again when he got stoned. He's been thrown in jail, an earthquake. This is PTSD time. All right? His hand probably shakes. And so the first thing that Jesus says is, don't be afraid. Right here we find a reason to reflect 
on the person and power of Jesus Christ. Do you know who he is? Do you know who he really is? There is a spiritual realm, an unseen realm behind all that is seen. And while it appears that Rome holds all the cards and is the largest empire on the planet, Jesus is Lord. He's the most powerful person in heaven and on earth. He's alive. And because he's the most powerful person who's ever lived, when he says, don't be afraid, you can trust him. When it's him saying it from heaven in vision tech, this is like AD 50, 51, okay? He's been dead for like 20 years. Don't be afraid. You trust him. You trust him. Don't be afraid. As Jesus comforts Paul and calls him to be courageous, maybe you need to be blessed by that this morning too. Don't be afraid. I don't know what you're afraid of. What is it? What are you afraid of? Here it's persecution problems. But whatever it is that is making you feel afraid, you can trust him with those fears. You can be comforted because he knows what's going on. Maybe you're afraid of stuff going on in your family. Maybe you've got some health issues and you don't know where it's going to take you. Maybe your finances, you don't even kind of want to look at the budget or the Excel spreadsheet. You're afraid. Maybe there's conflict and you don't know what's going to happen with that person or those people. Maybe you have some big decisions coming up and you don't want to get them wrong. Maybe other people have big decisions coming up and you can't even control what they're going to decide. So you're afraid, you're afraid, you're afraid, and Jesus knows it. And remember, after he calmed the storm, right, he turned to the disciples, and you remember what he said? Where is your faith? And maybe that's the question for you. Do you know who he is? Do you know he's the ruler of heaven right now? Do you know he's the most powerful person who's ever lived? And do you realize, because he appeared to Paul in a vision, you can also trust that you don't have to be afraid? Well, I wish you would appear to me in a vision. You don't need that. You don't need that. And people who got that didn't always respond the way that you think they would. You know what I'm talking about? Sometimes they didn't like what they heard in the vision, okay? They didn't, they didn't have the courage. The vision only amplified Paul's confidence in Christ. You don't need that. You just need to know who Jesus is. So do not be afraid. Write this down. Don't be silent. He said, don't be silent. The Great Commission is, of course, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? We're to teach them to obey everything Christ has commanded, and we're to remember that He is with us always to the very end of the age. This is a bit of a retelling of that, but embedded in that call and commission is to not be silent. Boy, does the world want us to be silent. Man, does the world wish we would just stop talking about this Jesus. We must never be silent. It says in verse 9, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. This is God's way of getting his message to the ends of the earth. We are commanded to talk. The idea of being a bold witness, the idea of when Paul said, Your blood is on your own heads, my hands are clean, also looks back to kind of Ezekiel 33, 
There was a watchman on the wall, and if he failed to blow the trumpet when an invading army was coming, he would be responsible for the blood of all the people who died. Because he was supposed to be the watchman on the wall, warning the city of danger, and if he didn't do that, those lives were on him. God used that in Ezekiel 33 and applied it to the prophets. If I announce a warning and you don't go and tell the people, their blood is on your head. I will hold you, God says, I will hold you accountable for their destruction. Now, in a similar way, Paul was feeling that burden here. God commissioned him to go and tell the world about Jesus. If he didn't do it, he knew that their blood was on his head. He's responsible for not warning them. That still is a biblical principle that applies today. If we don't, as a church, as individuals, go and tell people the good news of Jesus, we are responsible for failing to warn the people around us. That's on us. And God will hold us individually, as a church, our entire generation, and the next generation represented in this room that is being raised up right now. Will you go and warn them, or will you be silent? God will hold you accountable. All of us. So we have to become bold witnesses. That doesn't mean we have to become obnoxious, arrogant, judgmental, or harsh. We can learn to have great spiritual conversations with people, but we have to learn to be brave, and we must not be silent, no matter the consequences. So do not be afraid. Jesus is saying this from heaven. Do not be silent. Jesus is saying this from heaven. Write this down. Jesus is alive and present. We deduce from this vision that Jesus is alive and present. This wasn't a pre-recorded broadcast that Jesus filmed before he died, you know, and then somehow the angels are playing it to Paul. He's really alive! Wow! That's pretty amazing. And so this vision gave great reassurance to go and continue the work. And remember, you don't need to see Jesus. You don't need to see a vision to truly believe. What did Jesus tell doubting Thomas, right? You have seen and therefore you believe, but blessed are what? Those who have not seen and believe by faith. God will find all sorts of ways to encourage you, to give you confidence and answers to know that he's real and he's alive without giving you a supernatural vision, right? You don't need that. But here, even in this text, you can see that Jesus is alive and present. So we don't have to be greatly afraid. And write this down. He knows and governs the future. He knows and governs the future. It says in verse 10, For I am with you. I am with you. He is alive and present, and no one will attack you to harm you. He knows the future. He knows how it's going to turn out. You're going to be fine in this city. How can he know that? He knows everything. He's omniscient. For I have many in this city who are my people. How does he know they're going to get saved? He has foreknowledge. He knows. He is governing all of the affairs of the future. So he knows and governs the future. The future is not a mystery to your God. You don't even know the first thing about the future, right? If, if you knew going into tomorrow with absolute certainty what just one stock would do, you could be rich by sundown. Do you realize that? If, if you knew with certainty just one thing about the future, you could be set for life. But you don't even know one thing about tomorrow. God knows everything. He knows everything about your future. All of it. 
Jesus knows everything, and he's governing your future. He's promised to work all things together for good. Let's talk about your future. Future can be a source of great fear for God's people. Do you trust that God already knows your future and that he's already promised to work it together for good? Do you trust God with your future? Our past can mess us up. And we got to go to God and say, help me with my past. Our present, life could be on fire and out of control. We've got to ask for help with our present. But the future, have you trusted God with your future? All of it, all of the days between now and your called home or the trumpet sounds. Have you trusted him with your future? He knows and governs the future. Do you really believe God will work all things together for good for you? Oh, it might seem like total chaos on earth right now in your life, but heaven is helping. And God's promises apply to you. Jesus knows exactly how things are going to turn out. He could tell you if he wanted to. Maybe if he did show up and tell you your future, it would be better than all of your hopes and dreams could ever have imagined. Or maybe it's worse than all of your nightmares. Either way, he'll work it together for good. Doesn't matter if all of your dreams come true. Doesn't matter if all of your nightmares come true. The disciples were on the boat when God calmed the storm and they made it safely to shore. Paul was on a boat where the boat sank and he had to doggy paddle to the beach where he then got bit by a poisonous snake. Whether the ship goes down or it somehow remains afloat, God will always prove faithful. Do you trust him with your future? Do you really trust him with your future? I wonder if you would willingly pray today, God, I trust you with my future. I will not fear my future. Then when life surprises you again this week, are you willing to pray again? Lord, I trust you with my future. I will not fear. Are you really willing to cling to that promise? So number one, Paul preached the gospel in Corinth. Number two, Jesus appeared to Paul in a vision. Don't be afraid. Don't be silent. Jesus is alive and present. He knows and governs the future. Number three, now for the trial. The Jews failed to persecute Paul. The Jews failed to persecute Paul. Oh, they went for it. And it's about to get ugly even though God told him that he'd be safe in the city. So let's read on. It says in verse 12, But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, so he's like the governor of the land, uh, combination of roles, like a governor, chief justice, blah, blah, blah. The Jews made a united attack on Paul, so they got this ready, brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. We don't know if they meant Jewish law or Roman law, probably both, trying to say this is a, not a law-abiding citizen. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, this is my favorite part, Paul goes like this. <sighs> He's about to open his mouth. Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal, out, out, out. And they all see Sosthenes, the new ruler of the synagogue who replaced Crispus, and beat him in front of the tribunal. 
This backfired, but Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Is Sosthenes getting beaten by the Jews because he botched the case, or the Greeks because he's wasting the court's time, or both? I don't know, but it backfired completely when they tried to go for Paul. He didn't even have to say a word. The whole thing caved in. Okay, so the Jews failed to persecute Paul. In AD 49, when Emperor Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome, it likely started this buzzing in the empire about Jews causing trouble. Big city governors don't want to deal with little problems. Big city, no big deal to him, okay? Get this out of my courtroom. Rome valued peace overall, the Pax Romana, which led, you know, stayed for about 200 years. Rome would enjoy peace. So they don't want any trouble. Get this out of here. I don't want to deal with it. Gallio was well known. Uh, his brother was Seneca, a famous writer at the time. He was highly respected for his legal opinions. So we don't know how case law worked back then. But if Gallio said so two huge things here, Paul's doing nothing criminal, and this is an internal matter of Jewish dispute. These are two earthquake rulings in the ancient world that would protect Christianity, at least until Nero started start burning the city and blame the Christians. But Christianity would be protected because nothing criminal is happening, and this is an internal Jewish matter, and uh, Judaism already had protection under the empire. So this is a huge, huge ruling in the initial phase when the church was getting off the ground. Gigantic. The church would enjoy peace in Rome. Write this down. The Jews wanted Rome to make Christianity a crime. The Jews wanted Rome to make Christianity a crime. It really could have crippled the church in many ways. They still would have lost in the end, but it could have radically changed the makeup of the early church. Rome's going to waffle until Nero in the 60s would kill thousands of Christians, blame them for the fire that destroyed 70% of Rome, but even then, Christians would largely enjoy a lot of freedom within the empire. There would be seasons of persecution, and then we all know what's coming, right? We all know what's coming. Rome is going to become a Christian empire, uh, right, in 300s. It's going, Christ is going to win, but the trials are just starting right now. So they wanted Rome to make Christianity a crime, but persecution backfired, write this down, and protected Christians. Persecution backfired and protected Christians. They stirred the pot and they paid the price because their persecution backfired. I don't know if you were following um, back in 2012, but there was a, a Christian who opened a cake baking shop and he got in huge legal trouble because there was a same-sex couple who asked him to make a wedding cake for their wedding. And he said, you know what? That goes against my Christian values. I'm not, I can't make the cake for you. That turned into a legal fight from 2002, and it didn't end until 2018. It went all the way up to the Supreme Court, where the highest court in the land was going to decide, is this a matter of religious liberty? Can a person who's a Christian say, I'm not going to make a cake that goes against my religious values in any way? This would be case law that would, that would really revolutionize uh, the country. And so it took six years, though, six years of a lot of legal issues. But he wrote a book, Jack Phillips, it's called The Cost of My Faith, The Cost of My Faith. And he shares how after all was heard and all was said, the court handed down um, a decisive ruling. It wasn't even close, a decisive ruling that this was, in fact, a matter of religious liberty. And he can decide not to do anything in his business if it violated his religious values. They gave him a gigantic win. And here's the thing, he keeps getting persecuted. People keep coming to him, asking him to make these cakes to try and destroy his business and to get him to compromise his values. So for example, one day 
he got a request for 38 wedding cakes that would be for 38 wedding ceremonies delivered to 38 different states because a man wanted to marry his computer. And he said no, and he got sued. There were other people who requested satanic cakes saying, Happy Birthday, Satan, featuring an upside-down cross or an image of Satan smoking marijuana, and he said no, and he got sued again and again. So this became a place where religious liberty was really on trial. Does a Christian cake baker have to make a cake that goes against his values? And it started with, you know, based on my view of marriage, I'm not going to make that cake, and it turned into all of these different crazy, ridiculous requests that are so out of bounds for a Christian. But you know what he says? The court has already given him his victory. Every one of these trials that comes up to the top, it totally backfired. It totally backfired because they pushed it all the way up to the top. What's waiting for him is one exoneration after another. So you can see how sometimes persecution can backfire. And that's what happened here in the Roman Empire. They pushed it, they pushed it, it totally backfired. The synagogue ruler got, got beat up and Paul was safe for a year and a half. He didn't have to worry about anything. He didn't have to worry about anything. So persecution backfired and protected Christians. That still happens today. Finally, write this down. Paul and the leaders were free to establish the church. Paul and the leaders were free to establish the church. It didn't have to turn out this way. Even when Paul does get thrown in jail later, what does he do? He writes most of the New Testament. <laughs> right? Chained to a Roman soldier, writing the New Testament. So God could have used it, even if he did get thrown in jail here. But Paul and the leaders were free to establish the church. Okay, as we close here, I really want us to reflect on how this applies to our mission to our city. Hey, Chicago and its surrounding suburbs, that's our mission field. It's a big city. It's a wicked city. It's a dark city. It's a violent, lustful, divided, rich, haughty city, home to people from all over the world. And this chapter inspires me because God has a heart for the cities just like ours. Imagine what he could do if his people said, here we are, send us. If we weren't afraid and we weren't silent, we knew Jesus was with us and we were going to go and tell everybody. Imagine what he could do. Imagine what he could do. We're launching a new website in a few weeks called findgodagain.com. People from our church have already filmed their testimonies to go on it. We're going to try and get as many people to go to this site as possible. You could film your testimony at some point and be on the site. But however you do it, are you ready? Are you saved? Have you accepted Jesus as the Messiah? Are you ready to trust him with all of your fears in the future? Are you ready to sacrifice and endure opposition like the early apostles and Christians? That is how they turned the world upside down. And that is how you and I can turn the world upside down as well. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you right on the outskirts of one of the greatest cities of our day, but it's so dark, divided, wicked, corrupt, violent, racist, rich. Lord, we can't in our own wisdom, in our own strength, be the light that this city needs. We, we can't spark a great awakening to the gospel, but you can. So Lord, we just joined with all the other churches, the hundreds of churches around Chicago, and we just say, Lord, 
What we just heard in Corinth was amazing. It was unbelievable. We pray that we would hear amazing and unbelievable things as we go out and make disciples in our city. Lord, we're asking you to do it again. You've already done this in big cities all around the world, and you've already done it in Chicago. So we're asking you to do it again. And whether we have a conversation with one person this week or 10 people, or whether we have an opportunity to share the gospel with thousands of people on the new website we're about to launch, may you use us as we will not be silent. Use us to share our faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.